Yeah, and that was only volume one, but he, it was oh, interesting because no. there's multiple volumes. Yeah, Is there's going to be, be more. there's going to be yeah. three volumes and an Obama Grundrisse. No, he's got a few. Pascal, how many books does he have? Like three or four? I mean, he I don't forget he starts with Dreams from My Father, oh. so he comes on with a book probably how he was in his thirties when he wrote that had accomplished nothing, and then uh, he wrote Audacity of Hope, mm-hmm. which was just a, a neoliberal tomb. I wish I had read that more carefully because I'd be less disappointed in his presidency. Uh, we've got the uh, the last one. I forgot the name of this. this, this I think this, it's called An American Dream, something like that. An American like that. Dream. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the, the, I remember we had Besner on the show where we were talking about how all of this literary, literary ch- uh, churning out being done by the Obama team, people, acolytes. To me, it's a, it's a whole rehabilitative process. They, they need to save the brand because the, they got so much out of the brand and the brand is so easily recyclable, whether it's Kamala Harris, whether it's Andrew Yang, whether it's yeah. XYZ personal of color, sexual orientation or disability, you know, carrying the neoliberal flag. They need that brand because that's all they got. Yeah. You, you know? say that so, though. Like, I do not think that it's transferable to just whoever the establishment picks. Right. I don't think like, you're wrong. Kamala got nobody to vote for her. In the yeah. no, I, 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 I think that your argument is sound, that it's a it's a, it's a one-shot deal. It's a one-trick pony. Uh, I think it's a one-trick pony because it failed, right? I don't think it would have been a one-trick pony if Hillary got elected. Mm. I think that if, if Hillary had won the model would have been seen as a, as a success. I think that what makes, you know, the one trick pony element of the, the Obama model is that basically Trump gets elected and Obama, the, the, the dismal nature of his non-recovery becomes transparent to large numbers of uh, progressives and liberals. Yeah. And that's what really kind of uh, shuts it down pretty much. And also, you have even disaffection in under forty segments of uh, the black electorate as well, mm. which is like the the ultimate death knell, because that they they need to keep you know black voters vested in that that kind of the first black this, the first black woman that, the first black woman transgender, gay, four fingered, having this that you know, and um, that model that model fell apart. But uh, this is like we're we're right into the episode already, folks. This is the Antifada. This is Sean KB. We have, of course, Jamie Peck. Say hi. Hello. And we have our two guests. Wonderful guests. We've been on their show and now they're on ours. Their show is This is Revolution. We have Jason Miles. Hello. Hey. And we have Pascal Robert. Hello. Peace, greetings and salutations. We got a nice little cold open out of all of this. Yeah, we're doing it. That um, probably Sean's episode on This Is Revolution is maybe the funniest. Uh, I far. That was a great that was a great episode. I was very happy you invited us on because we put out some really, really good uh, talk on that uh, episode that you were on with us. Jason, you and Marcus made me laugh on that on that stream. I think harder than I have in fucking years. 
I mean, people should go back and check that out. We'll put it in the show notes. But uh, uh, inward looking, as it turns out, is a really easy thing to spin. Yes. That was, that was, oh, pl- wow. that was classic. A classic. That was classic. <laughs> we found that a new way classic. to step in dog shit as a white guy. <laughs> this is the first I'm hearing of this. Uh, oh, sorry, my appearance wasn't look. funnier. I'll try harder next time. Sean had mentioned speaking to a congregation of black people. And he said, look inwards. <laughs> and it's going to be like he said, Jesus. look inwards. <laughs> and, uh... Oh, my God, Can't they're doing it again. <laughs> my sterling what? reputation is down the pipe. I will never, never in the rest of my life will I ever use inward looking because of the inherent dangers of it to my own personal brand. Wow. <laughs> that was a lot of fun, though. That was a really, really good, smart, funny episode. And everyone you, should you check it out. But we're, but we're back again. Here we are. We're back on the Antifada. We got, we got more content coming in. So let's get into it. Jamie, you are kind of in charge here. You're the host today. So what, what do you got? I don't know. I think so. Oh, boy. I'm just here to talk shit. All right. Well... We were just talking about Obama and how he was a one-trick pony. Uh, I would also add that, uh, you know, the first black president is a trick that only works once, right? Because you can only have one first black president. Uh, I mean, I guess they'll try it with a woman, and there's, like, a few different places they can go with that. But, like, You have the first yeah. all-black president because he's, like, a kind of black president. So the first, like, black-ass president ADOS. very different. Right. When when do you think that's gonna happen? Ooh, who's who's black? Who's the black ass person that would be president, uh, Pascal? I was gonna say Chris Dave Rock? Dave Chappelle. But... <laughs> oh man! I mean, Chris Dave Chappelle good. is not an outlandish idea because I think he represents the sort of liberal backlash against identity politics and political correctness or whatever you want to call it. Dave Chappelle. Yeah, that's, really, that's a really interesting uh, proposition that you, you lay there, uh, uh, Jamie Peck, because my question is who's really, uh, who's really using Dave, uh, Dave Chappelle now more? Is it the liberals or the conservatives? I see a lot of conservatives gives, blowing hugs and kisses at Chappelle. Uh, what's her name? The woman uh, right for the Wall Street Journal. Was was a Ronald Reagan speechwriter? Uh, oh my God! Why her name escapes me now? She wrote a whole long ode to Dave Dave Chappelle after his comedy uh, sketch. Peggy Noonan. Peggy Noonan. Oh, I was right. like, Peggy Noonan blowing hugs and kisses to Dave Chappelle. Okay, that's interesting. Strange um, bedfellows. Dave, Dave Chappelle's an interesting character to me because I feel like younger people, because they were so uh, attached to his show, it was such a part of their growing up that they really feel that Dave Chappelle is this like woke character because a lot of his comedy actually deals with race politics. And he probably at that time did it better than anyone else because also Dave Chappelle comes on a channel where they pretty much gave him carte blanche to do whatever the fuck he wanted to do because they didn't know it was going to work. And he comes in kind of years after living color and people forgot how progressive in living color was. I mean, hip hop today, in my opinion, <laughs> looks like a living color skit from 1992 <laughs> when, you, when you look at kind of the things that they were doing. Um, of course, a lot of that comedy does sit in a certain era, but 
the projection onto Chappelle of being this kind of woke warrior that's on your side, I've always found really funny because the politics of a lot of those characters that come out of the 90s, which Chappelle is, is a child of, of the 90s. He's around the same age as, as Pascal. He's a little older than me. Um, it, they're so reactionary. All my favorite rappers, the ones I follow on Instagram, say some of the worst political shit you can ever imagine i mean listening to or, or reading talib quayley scold some white dude that used the n-word in a battle rhyme with saying you need to read more robin d'angelo oh boy and I'm like, you're supposed to be the king woke and this is all who is in Chappelle's circle i think people kind of just assume he's someone he is not yeah i, I think Go ahead, Jamie. It's, it's, it's also hard for people to wrap their minds around the fact that someone could have good takes on one thing and bad takes on other things. Like you, people are complicated, you know, like it, 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 it's really, it's really not that difficult for me. People are like, I'm like, Oh yeah, I agree with you on that. Uh, you're wrong about that. But people have trouble because they engage in this kind of black and white thinking. Yeah. And once you're wrong, then you're done. Right. That's like the whole thing. Like once I don't like anything you say, well, then fuck you forever. And it was kind of interesting because I do have a very good friend that is actually in that camp, in the in the Chappelle camp. And uh, was that the gentleman you guys had on your show? Uh, He was like backstage or something. He was in his closet. He was in his closet. Okay, not not quite backstage. <laughs> Looked like it could have been a green I wish room. he was backstage. I should lie and say he was back. He was getting ready to go to a comedy show, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, my buddy Chris Riggins. And he was there when Dave met uh, the, the woman in question that so many people had a, had issue with at the end of, of the skit. And I think he had a pretty honest take on, on what it was. I mean, he wasn't saying, you know, Dave was the greatest man in the world, but... I don't think Dave Chappelle liked backlash. And I think he's getting something that he's never gotten before that a lot of these comedians are getting that they never got before. And that's crazy backlash because we forget how kind of trend setting some of these nineties guys were for their time. And now they go speak to, you know, much younger audiences that maybe watch their shows or not. And they're just like, man, I don't really dig what you're saying. And they just, kind of get thrown off by the whole thing. Like Dave, I'm sure you guys read about him talking to a bunch of high schoolers. Oh my God. <laughs> so fucking cringe. He went in and dressed down a bunch of high school students at the high school that he graduated from. And he was like, you guys are corny. I'm the best in the world. I'm Dave Chappelle, children. <laughs> Did he tell them to get off his lawn? No, he told So What did he say? He said, you'll never in your life do anything like I've done, which I thought was funny. I oh, mean, narcissism. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, probably, yeah. Like, why you gotta be a sore winner? Oh, they were being dicks. They were being, you know, typical kids, right? You know, oh fuck you for saying this shit, and you're this, and you're that. It's like, all right. I mean, the thing is, though, to in, in the larger scheme, I mean, the reality is, is that Dave Chappelle, as a Generation X kind of person just does not have, and I say this because I'm Generation X, the politics on those issues are very, very new in terms of being much more open to concepts of gender fluidity, identity fluidity. They're very new. They're less than 10 years old. And, you know, 
whether or not we agree with his right to have those politics, the bottom line is that generationally they going to play differently to people who are younger. And a lot of them are not going to like that. And I'm not here to, to make a determination of who's right or wrong on the issue. What I'm saying is that what I find interesting about Dave Chappelle is that he's making a judgment about his right to share ideas. But there's also, I think, a need to acknowledge the fact that the atmosphere is changing generationally on the issue. And I think that's one aspect I don't see people really kind of talk about as much yeah. is that the younger people, frankly, are more open to these concepts than a lot of people for a few years older really are. And these concepts are really at the center of uh, the major culture war in this country right now, which is over critical race theory and also the teaching of uh, racism and anti-racism in school. Like These are central right now to this sort of ephemeral bullshit Democrat versus Republican um, battle over... Whatever. Well, it's, it's also like I think Pascal is saying it's a generational thing and there's definitely a generational battle happening within the Democratic Party as well. Um, I mean, you could you could say that Joe Biden represents a sort of triumph of the kind of cranky old liberals who are like, ah, enough already with the genders. We don't want to be woke. We got to appeal to the average American worker, not with any economic program that's going to help them, obviously. But, you know, with this culture war shit, that, which is all we have left. But they kind of have to walk the line, right? Because the Republicans are openly reactionary yeah. uh, bigots. And then the Democrats have to say, yeah, I'm not a bigot. I, and I'm sick of being called one for having, you know, uh, expressing some skepticism, however they want to put it, you know, of, of, of trans liberation or whatever. Well, listen, don't you think, though, uh, that the, 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 the liberals and the Democrats and the you know, we call it the left flank of capital. I've read a couple of articles that they're trying to have it both ways in that they're trying to uh, perpetuate this illustration of open-minded progressivism on all of these identitarian issues, whether they be sexual orientation, whether they be race, whether they be immigrant rights and so on and so forth. And they're heightening their perceived perceived fealty to these supposedly progressive concepts in the age of Trump to strategically try to delegitimize the Trumpian reactionary right project as being oh so racist, oh so anti-immigrant, oh so sexist, oh so uh, anti-LGBTQ, which they legitimately are. But the indulgence in that contradiction and in that politics is not because they want to root solutions to the constituents in those identity demographics with policy that changes their material condition. They want to use it as a virtue signaling flag to delegitimize the right, as I stated earlier, but also to keep those identitarian groups believing that they are the only ones that will protect them. Yeah. So it's a it's a double it's a two flank strategy in that regard. Yeah, it sucks, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it working? Uh, certain, kind of. I mean, the. I mean, look, Joe Biden's president. Yeah, true. I don't know who's going to be president after him. Donald. Hopefully, Trump. no one. <laughs> but uh, I think it was a one trick pony with Biden. I think that. Uh, I don't think that. Uh, I think it worked to get him elected. 
to an extent, as well as a few other things. But I think that their belief in America's tolerance for this type of overused word, wokeism, and their unwillingness to understand the effectiveness and better quality of messaging the right always has at utilizing these things to energize their base. I think that in this current political moment, particularly after what we saw with the last round of elections early November, it's starting to fail them very badly, particularly when it comes to their polling, particularly when it comes to the election results, the fact that they almost lost the New Jersey gubernatorial election. These, this does not bide well. Would you, would you say, would you say this? And I asked this question to the panel that with the election of Joe Biden, one of the maybe unintended consequences is that you have this younger voting base that while they did kind of come out because there was the old, you know, don't let the quote unquote fascists get elected. Would you agree that at this point, there's a lot more young people that are so turned off by electoral politics that they're just not voting anymore? It's a very good point. Yeah. I think you. I think it's a good, a good, a good analysis. And then when they they quit believing in the Democrats, they start listening to "This Is Revolution" and the Antifada, and then we got them. <laughs> you you would hope, but you, you would know, hope. Uh, now the route of like a lot of them are on Reddit, and a lot of them have Picru accounts on Twitter, and they're getting into like Catholic integralism and Carlism and uh, trad Orthodox Christianity, quasi fascism. I mean, that's really so, a lot. I wanna, you know, Chris, I want to ask you a question because you're bringing up some interesting points. Have we lost Generation Z in this? Uh, in this? Uh, no. Practice? Generation Z is based as fuck. I mean, look, they're a real mixed bag, all right? Because, <laughs> like, at the same time that we have super young people uh, leading some of the more militant aspects of the George Floyd uprising last year, um, we have super young people getting involved in DSA. I feel like an old lady sometimes at these meetings, and I'm fucking 36. Uh, we also have the next generation of fascists because... Preach, Grandma. We, <laughs> like, oh God, they played, they played 100 Gex at the end of a meeting. And I was like, oh, so that's what they sound like. It's exactly what I thought. And it's terrible. And then I got ratioed on Twitter. Um, we also have yeah. a, and I have to always be the workerist here. We also have a new generation of young workers who are hyped on unions and who are going in and organizing often from socialist uh, principles, uh, which is exciting too. Yeah. I, I do like also- the fact that that's more common, right? I just, I just put an article in the chat. I don't know if you guys can see it. I actually read it this morning um, from Business Insider and it was uh, a portrait, a portrait of the typical Gen Zer who is mired in student debt, but is the influencer of pop culture. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's, that's every young generation, except it's getting worse and worse with every generation that comes along now. Right. Well, every generation's the young generation are the influencers, uh, but the, but they the have influencer the least economic power. Yeah, the influencer industry is different now in that it's so it pervasive, and also yeah. that yeah, like you said, Gen Z is graduating into an economy that's been shit for twelve to thirteen years before they were even entering the job market. We had that financial yeah. crash, which we have not even recovered from. So that's yeah. yeah. That's, that's what the article literally starts out with. And I actually just wrote a piece on the idea um, 
we we hear the term grifter get thrown around so much in the space that we're in. We've probably all been called grifters at oh, one yeah. point or another. Oh, yeah. For whatever reason, regardless of how poor we are. I mean, I literally had to move to another country to fucking be able to pay rent. Um, and I don't like that terminology because I don't think a lot of people are grifters. There are definitely con artists in our game, but I think it's more of the in, internet influencer mentality more so than it is the grifter and that's a whole different ball game because as we are the first you know pascal and i are he's a gen x from a much younger gen xer um <clears throat> we're the first generation that's constantly being sold to right my my um the, the first things i remember about my childhood are kind of these 22 minute commercials that were supposed to be tv shows but they were just ways for me to buy shit and we're also the people that don't like hidden advertisements, whereas the Gen Z generation is part of, you know, social media they grew up in, um, the Internet they grow up in, reality television is a thing they grow up in. So the idea of a talentless, uninformed personality <laughs> selling you something and they're popular for popular sake is very normalized. So selling politics becomes very normalized. So it's not so subversive. You're not really part of a counterculture. You've just found another market niche, be it a small one, it's still a market niche and you're gonna you know, jump all over that market niche. So the influencer in politics, in my opinion, I'm starting to see them kind of fall in line more so with the late 80s, early 90s, like radio talk show host, where it's just usually a politics of outrage. Hmm. That's interesting. Maybe that is a good segue to talking about your political project, because um, I have written down a question about it. Um why did you guys start this is revolution what is your political project um what do you think the responsibilities are for those making leftist media well that's a really damn good James, question the fucking question you guys on but, the spot well, jason started this is revolution podcast and two i came years. on last year yeah, celebrated two years by the way congrats but, cheers uh, off. i've been on for a year but uh, i can tell in terms of when him and I, when, he, when we came together in December of last year, I think one of the things that we both, and we've said this before, were motivated by was the way in which we disliked how mainstream media was painting socialism and left politics as a quote unquote white thing, but intentionally to, to, to delegitimize the Sanders project, regardless of whether we supported Sanders or not. I think the position that we had was that it was so intellectually, blatantly intellectually dishonest and the disservice to black political history that one of the things that we uh, we definitely felt it was our job to do was to introduce our audience to black left political figures and black left history to really inform people that not only is socialism not a quote-unquote white thing, but there has not been effective socialist politics in America that did not exist without black people. That black people have been integral to socialist, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist politics throughout the history of this country as long as they've existed. And uh, that was one of the motivations that we had. And uh, I think not also kind of doing so in a way 
in which accessibility to our politics was clear and that we don't get stuck in a very kind of reductionist trope about what black leftism looks like. In other words, we don't fetishize X, Y, Z era. We're not stuck in 1972. We're not stuck romanticizing either the, you know, the socialists of the twenties or the black power era or the black Panther party. We kind of try to celebrate all of it in a more balanced way. And uh, we try to also to be ideologically uh, non-sectarian because we, we, one of the things I think that Jason and I agree with, and Jason, you can correct me if you're wrong, is that we find no value in people believing that their little idiosyncratic tendencies on the left mean anything to most working class people. Most people, the most working class people don't know about these tendencies, and frankly, they don't care. And one of the things that I constantly say on the show is that, one, number one, the left doesn't have the power to pop a grape. Number two, that there really is no left in America. We just have leftists. And number three, that just finding someone who actually agrees that capitalism is the problem is so obscured from the consciousness of most leftists that unless they are you know, buying into their individual uh, you know, reading of the 18th Brumier by Marx, they're going to dismiss them without realizing, for me, as someone who spent most of my adult life in the era of capitalist realism and was a teenager during the Reagan years, I can tell you that finding any American any American, regardless of age, particularly if they're older, who realizes that capitalism is the root of the power problem, regardless if they've read Marx or Engels or Das Kapital or 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 you know are an ML sock damn trot commie or whatever else, <laughs> is a massive massive step forward. And I think that on the left we fail to realize. And we had Sam Cedar on the show, and we got a lot of pushback for a lot of people for having Sam on. But one of the things I did enjoy about the show is that Sam, being a contemporary of my age, realized like, listen, in two thousand, no one gave a damn about socialism. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No one likes to hear that argument either, and that that. Everything Pascal says is right. You know, the, the one big reason why the show did start, you know, I'll be, I'll be completely transparent. If, if I'm a musician. Um, I spent hundreds of days a year touring all over the planet. And this was going to be something I could do when I wasn't touring. The band didn't think it made sense because they were like, who wants to listen to musicians talk about anything other than themselves? And I was like, no, no, dude, we I, I live in this fucking cool studio with all our fucking heroes in it. You know, I grew up listening to 80s thrash metal and I get to be in the same studio with Exodus and Testament, Death Angel and Faith No More. And then all my punk heroes as well, like Flipper and and then Dead Kennedys and shit. And it's and it's like, oh, we can interview these guys. And we can also have like political discussions and, and it kind of morphed into just having political discussions and the show definitely changed um, because I did want to, everything Pascal is saying is correct. I did want to have a, a a show that had a black left perspective that wasn't couched in um, dashikis and and fists. Um, Oh my God. So, so meeting Pascal (laughs) through, uh, through Toure Reed and then meeting Toure through uh, Cedric Johnson was was huge for the growth of the show. And I, I always have to give those guys a, uh, a massive shout out for for putting the show together and getting it to, to where it is now. I, I have a little sidebar here. I uh, was in community college in 1998 or 1999. 
and I took a class randomly. I was like a vague anarchist at this point. I took a class about the USSR, a history class. And the teacher was, pro he was a baby boomer. I think he was probably about 50 or something at the time. Always wore a daishiki to class. Uh, and he taught, the first, the first day of class, he went up and he wrote US and USSR on the, on the blackboard. And he wrote, us and usser. <laughs> and he went through and talked about like the, you know, like the, the, the modes of production and, and state capitalism and all this shit like that. What is that tradition? Right. I, I believe the guy was some sort of Trotskyist. But can you guys give us like a little bit about what like where people like that came from and maybe the, the, the cycle of struggle I mean, that kind of left them behind? I'm, I'm assuming if he was wearing the Joshiki, he was probably a black guy. Would I be correct? Yes. That yes. Very much. So I thought that was implied. But... <laughs> hey, you never know, man. You never know where the fuck was going on. It was actually. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi in a class. <laughs> it was actually Nancy Frazier. <laughs> uh, cloth and shit. One of the things that we, 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 when you look at the trajectory of like black left politics in America from the uh, 60s period where you have kind of like revolutionary nationalism, which is taking the, the, the day, which is basically a form of socialism that believes in revolutionary socialism. It's kind of rooted in Marxist Leninism with a little bit of Maoism as well that kind of uh, posits the position that black people in America are an internal colony into themselves and that, you know, socialist revolution is the only means of liberation. It is rooted in, you know, anti-capitalism and anti-imperialism, but it kind of is a, a product of an adoption of the Franz Fanon kind of a worldview of black diasporic identity in the face of the decolonial struggles of the 60s. So what you find is that there's a lot of kind of intellectual carryover in the 60s radical period with the thoughts of people like Fanon in the, in the wake of the decolonial struggles of people like Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, as well as the rise of people like Patrice Lumumba, Lumumba in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Congo and, you know, all of these other phenomenon, you have Jomo Kenyatta in Kenya. So a lot of black radical politics is infused with an intention internationalism that adopts this kind of uh, Marxist Leninist uh, position, but with a racial component of revolutionary nationalism that's basically black nationalism, but with a socialist revolutionary kind of class critique. And the way in that the way that nationalism was commonly manifested in the 60s, in the early 70s, was through the belief and the perpetuation of the internal colonial theory of black life, which many, many, my editor, Glenn Ford, a black agenda, you know, rest in peace. He was an advocate of the of, of revolutionary colonial theory of the black people are an internal colony. Bruce Dixon, who was also my editor of Black Agenda Report, had rejected those concepts and formed, found them as a form of nationalism that black folk were beyond. I, I, I do not subscribe to the internal colony theory. I don't think Jason does either. We have critiques of it, but we can't deny that it is a actual legitimate segment of radical black political thought. And what, when in referring to the gentleman that you were saying you had as a teacher as in the uh, in 98, war Dashiki, he probably came out of the black left, radical black left of the 60s and early 70s. Mm -hmm. But there was also a stage in the early 70s where a lot of those radicals had turned to scientific socialism, hmm. like a really kind of like technocratic understanding of socialism. And like the way, though, like when you say he used words like state capitalism and whatnot, I see that he probably was one of those guys that had evolved from the revolutionary nationalist discourse into that kind of more scientific socialism uh, vibe that was very popular. 
Because early seventies. Yeah, we one thing you're not adding in there that I think is very important when we talk about this maturation process is this is also the maturation process of how you you mature during defeat and the defeat of the left of the late sixties. To, to, to basically retreat because now socialism becomes not just a bad word, but it's a word that can get you fired. So it's just now becoming popular. I was interviewing people last year that were quote unquote socialist professors that couldn't say that they were socialist professors. Um, so does the technocratic approach become kind of the, the mentality of the defeated? I mean, I think that there, I think that there is a, that's a very good question, by the way, Jason, there's a lot of very bad political behavior that comes out of the left in the defeat of the late sixties, early seventies. One of the bad forms of behavior that I would agree with is the retreat into academia. Yeah. It's interesting when I, when we think about the politics of retreat, because uh, I'm working on an internal colony video essay. Hmm. Your video essays are great, by the way. No, no, no thank you. I pre- I need, I fucking do the hate we got from the Sam Cedar show really kind of fucked me up. No, I'm sorry. Um, and it is part from Cedric Johnson's essay on Huey Newton. He wrote a, a long form essay on Huey Newton. That is amazing. And another part of it is from Kamala Harris's dad's 1973 work. Ah. The internal colony. He's a Marxist professor. Right, uh, along with Buddha judge, judges, uh, late Buddha father was also transcribed uh, Gramsci. Um, How far they and, have fallen? You know, reading reading these these two works on internal colony, and then also reading there's a 1973 issue uh, of Ebony magazine from August of 73 that has Marxist critiques of a burgeoning black middle class. And the problematic nature of this burgeoning black middle class, because they're 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 getting this middle class status in some parts of the country through government jobs. Um, and then when I tell Pascal about all this, because remember this is new to me, I wasn't alive in '73. So if I tell Pascal, "Oh, I just read this thing by this guy," Pascal's like, "Oh, well, that guy ended up writing this in 1990, mm. or he did this in '80 something." And it's really interesting to see where these guys went after the tide of, of radicalism. Yeah. Yeah, the guy who wrote that article, by the way, ended up becoming a massive Obama supporter. Ah, uh, so we're back to Obama. I wanted to kind of get back to this. Uh, Jamie has some good questions about this, but generally, like, um, there, it seems like a lot of what you talked about on your show when I was on, uh, vis a vis uh, black politics and the Democratic Party, talks about this sort of stranglehold. Uh, that the Democrats have on, on even the horizon of possibility for a black um, politics in this country, socialist or otherwise. So what is this relationship between these middle class um, black people that you're referring to and the Democratic Party? How does this relationship operate and through what sort of people? It's a very good question. I think I've, I've said enough about this. I think Jason can almost handle this on his own. Oh, no. <laughs> you, hey, look, you just wrote a piece in Newsweek. So yeah, I don't know if you guys read that, but I wrote a piece in Newsweek. Uh, the title of the piece is so they, I mean, they, they 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 create their own titles. I didn't get the title. It's like you know, there's a black elite. Some, it's basically about black elites. Tell them the real. Oh, <laughs> what's the real title? 
I read it, by the way. I was very impressed to see someone talking about this in Newsweek. The, re- the original title was that how class creates a black politics of containment. That was the original title. But uh, that piece kind of talks about the actual mechanisms of how this happened, but I can really go over it for you on, on the show, is that the main theory, and literally this theory, the first time I actually said it, and I actually thought about it, and Jason doesn't know this, is actually on our show, on our podcast, uh, is when I came up with the concept of black politics being a politics of containment. And what that basically means is that black politics, even going back to the 19th century, hinged on this concept called race management. And this, you can find this in academia. If you're familiar with Adolf Reed or Cedric Johnson, they talk about, Cedric Robinson, excuse me, Cedric Johnson, I was wrong, that's the first time. They talk about this. Brokerage, uh, race management is basically the concept where you get in totally undemocratic, unelected black figure who becomes the, the, the racial ventriloquist for the aspirations of all black America and is the quote unquote, the black leader who negotiates all of the political and uh, policy configurations that deal with black people at the behest of the ruling class. And he is usually chosen because his propositions will be not only not a threat to the ruling class, but will generally be in accordance with what the ruling class normally wants. Not only that, he usually is chosen at a time to neutralize a more radical configuration to his left. The ultimate embodiment of this race management paradigm in the 19th century is Booker T. Washington. And if you are not familiar with the great work of the the, uh, late academic historian Judah Stein, who has a really good piece on the rise of Booker Booker T. Washington, I can email it to you if you guys haven't read it. She basically talks about how Booker T. Washington is elevated in the 1880s and 90s to neutralize the populist movement Mm. and the Colored Farmers Alliance and their cooperation with the majority white Farmers Alliance to try to challenge Southern bourbon capitalism in its its unwillingness to give political options to Southern sharecropping uh, agricultural workers who not necessarily in the most kind of like congenial way did try to work in cross-racial coalitions to ch- southern challenge southern bourbon capital and even create a third party option for a populist party and how the rise of booker t washington by capitalists like the melons and uh, a whole the, the whole kind of industrialist class in the south and the north was used to illustrate a message of black subservience to a segregated economic and political model that put black political aspiration aside under the guise of, you know, bootstrapping self-help notions of learn how to, you know, you know, hoe hoe a farm before you actually think about learning to vote discourse that was all really perpetuated to keep black workers subservient to the exigence and needs of American capitalism. And he fulfilled that role as the race manager du jour up until his death in 1915. And the the, the talented tense paradigm that Du Bois comes up with in 1903 as a consequence of his book, The Souls of Black Folk, is not that much of a deviation of the race management paradigm in that all it does is that it gives it multiple figures to fulfill the same role. 
as an elite cadre of race managers, undemocratically elected, that basically negotiate the political aspirations of the uh, undemocratically heard black majority. So this race management paradigm persists throughout black politics throughout the 20th century, even though you have black communists and socialists that arise in the 20s and 30s and 40s, even though you have uh, black nationalists like Marcus Garvey who arise, who are outside of this cadre. But this particular, this cadre of race management elite continues throughout the teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, becoming the civil rights establishment during the civil rights movement. And I think we all are aware enough of our civil rights history to realize that the civil rights movement was basically a Cold War concession with American capital and power to use integration as a means to improve America's foreign policy image in the face of the rise of Soviet communism in the black and brown world. I don't think any of us are alien to that story at this stage. I think we've, we, we're all familiar with that narrative. So even as much as we are, we are indoctrinated with a romanticized notion of the civil rights movement. And they're very noble actors who believe that they're doing the best that they could. We have to realize that there was a much more radical transformative politics of black, of black uh, activity in the thirties and forties with socialist Marxist communists, what have you, who were pushing for materialist policy, who for in a small, for a small window, even the liberals, even the black race management elite in the forties, incorporated some of their policy suggestions before McCarthyism rendered it obsolete. There's a really good book, if you're ever interested in reading it in half time, because we know we all have to read a lot, called What the Negro Wants. It was written, written in 1944, and it basically is a, a series of essays of Black liberal elites talking about policy considerations that they feel that Black Americans need at that time. And what you find is that, surprisingly, a lot of it is rooted in political economy, union jobs, workers' compensation, things of that nature. And that's because they were open to being influenced to the black radicals to their left, i.e. the socialists and communists, to incorporate some of their policy considerations and their thinking. That dies with the rise of the anti-communism with the uh, with the McCarthy era and after World War II. And black politics suffers because of that. And we get this kind of liberal race reductionist politics that comes out of the civil rights movement which is also a race management paradigm. To get really quick to answer Chris's point, after the radicals in the Black Power area are neutralized pretty much in 1972 at a convention called the Gary, Gary Convention, which is a Black political convention, and the Black political class, which is the Congressional Black Caucus, civil rights institution, institutions, elected officials, Black mayors, the more conservative, traditional, upstanding, respectable, respectable excuse me, leadership of Black politics really take the helm in the leadership of the black political messaging. They lose the socialism, they lose the, the, the international uh, version, and they start to absorb black capitalism in the Nixon administration. And from that point on in the early 70s, black politics becomes more and more and more embracing of conservatism within the Democratic Party and more and more embracing of neoliberalism, particularly in the with the rise of, of the Clinton as well. And that's how today what ends up happening is that black politics becomes a politics of containment where this black political class or what black agenda report calls the black misleadership class funnels the electoral votes 
of black people through their membership organizations like fraternities, sororities, Freemasons, the links, black churches, historically black colleges and universities, black professional organizations who all kind of create and control the ideological superstructure of black life, i.e. your black fraternities and sororities, which a lot of people don't understand are very important because your black teachers and high school administrators in your black high schools come out of these organizations and the teachers at your historically black colleges and universities. So literally the ideological infrastructure, and you cannot forget the importance of your black corporate media as well, who work in line with creating this kind of messaging of, come on, y'all, we got to vote for Hillary, or come on, y'all, we got to vote for Biden, or, or like, you know, we got to support Obama, that ends up basically dumping black electoral, electoral participation in the neoliberal corporate flank of the Democratic Party. And with the ultimate conundrum we have today, or what we've had since 2016, from my analysis, and I've always challenged anyone to correct me if I'm wrong and no one has been able to do it, this is the first time, at least since the Voting Rights Act, where the fulcrum of black electoral politics is to the right of white progressives. When traditionally black electoral politics was on the more radical or progressive, even Jesse Jackson in the 80s, as much as we could critique him, he was considered the progressive in that election. But with the rise of the Clinton neoliberalism in the 90s and black people coalescing around them, and now with the rise of Sanders in 2016, and we have this large group of particularly young white progressives, black politics is literally in the most conservative, electoral on the electoral, electoral branch anyway, the most conservative faction of the Democratic Party with a large cadre of white progressive to its left. And it's causing all kinds of internal contradictions. Would you say that a a big reason why, and and I'm I'm asking Pascal, but this is also, of course, the question to the panel. Would you say a big reason why that happens is because it's so easy to reduce these politics down to race? I.E. Sanders, let's remember, was it 2015? He's on the campaign trail. He gets interrupted by Black Lives Matter. What is your black agenda? Even 2020, as he's running, or 2019 as he's running, that becomes the cry, becomes reparations. I've been black for 44 years. I don't remember reparations being on a presidential uh, 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 platform ever. When the when the Negro was running, not one uh, other Negro asked that dude about reparations. But all of a sudden, reparations became this sticking point uh, for Sanders. So, is there something to be said about the ability to to take black politics and always reduce it down to uh, what is your black platform? And Ice Cube kind of threw a huge monkey wrench into everything for five minutes with his whole "I got a platform for Black America." I think that that product, that you, I think you're absolutely correct. I think that that not, doesn't, it, it really culminates heavily in the Gary Convention of 72, where people are talking about, we need a black agenda. I don't trust white Democrats or white Republicans. I only trust my own black party. This is Jesse Jackson saying this literally in 1972. Mm-hmm. We should show, if we can get a chance to show you a, 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 a documentary on the 1972 Gary Convention. I- and it, I did make a clip, Pascal, but I guess you forgot about that. <laughs> and you did. And, and when you see, when you hear the rhetoric in this 72 convention and you hear what they're asking for, you'll be like, this sounds like everything that we're talking about like today. <laughs> like in terms of we want a black agenda, reparations, we want reparations. And what, one of the things that I always say is like, it's so amazing to me yeah. to watch black folk recycle politics that weren't working in 1972, in 2020, in 2021. 
you know, and and what's fascinating is that it all comes from yeah, the belief that there is a unitary one kind of contained in one kind of Ziploc bag black community that doesn't have multifaceted class interests, economic interests, social interests, and anything else. Right. And one universal black agenda could solve every, all black people's problems when that black agenda is almost always like black capitalism for some black businesses that are minority set-asides or some means-tested programs. And it's the same thing over and over again. And it demonstrates such a complete lack of awareness of black political history. It's kind of tragic. Yeah, I, I noticed that they put the word community in your uh, headline, and it I kind of not, made me laugh. I did not put that title there. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you didn't. Um, it says, a black political elite serving corporate interests is misrepresenting our community. And it kind of made me laugh because you cite Adolph Reed right there in the piece, and he you know, famously thinks that community is reactionary uh, because – just the very idea that Wait, there is such a thing as a black community that has the same interests as the, what was that? What's that sound effect just now? Oh, that was me. I'm sorry. I was seeing how long the clip was, the This Is Revolution clip about the Gary, Indiana thing. Because I think maybe as we get out of the main episode, maybe we can play out with that clip and then we can go to the bonus section. It's it's uh it's something I, I actually took footage from the Gary uh, convention and I also took footage from this. Um, there was a show in the seventies called Tony Brown's Journal in New York. Um, Pascal and I also have talked uh, in length about what you you know uh, black politics looked like in the seventies from a from a public television standpoint it looked very very different than it does today. And Tony Brown's journal had kind of a meeting of the minds, if you will, with all of these figures in black politics. Uh, I think this is a 71. This is like a year before the convention, right? Pascal's. Yes. And uh, so I took some clips from that as well, which is actually kind of a very interesting conversation because when you hear the, the, the language in it, you'd be, you'd be shocked. It's very, it's very, very separatist. A lot of these, these cats were, uh, were nationalists. Um, but hearing them talk in 1971, it sounds a lot like what we heard over the last, I would say, five or six years. This I is mean, the era of black affairs television where you had like in every major television market, you had uh, once a week, you have one TV show, show that, can, that dealt with like black political affairs. They were generally kind of like very black nationalist oriented programs. Some of them were actually very good for the politics of that day, if you were into that politics. But um, they were definitely from a traditional kind of us, our community, we as a people together, we all in one kind. And as much as we may not like that political posture, I don't think Jason and I would deny that is the political posture that many black people view. But they view many black people view black people as one corporate community. Yeah. Us, we, my, our community, our people. That's very, very, very authentically a true sentiment. Unfortunately, I think the political consequences of that thinking is problematic. All right. And with that, uh, let's go ahead over behind the paywall. If you're not yet a patron of the Antifada, you can go to patreon.com slash the Antipada, Antipada, Antifada, and become a patron for all of our bonus content, access to our Discord, and all that fun stuff. So we'll see you on the other side. Now, some of the white news media has criticized us for calling this convention and welcoming all of our brothers and sisters. But we shall determine who comes to this convention. That's the right group. 
decision. We demand that any party which asks our support acknowledge the inhumanity every black man, woman, and child faces in a hundred different ways each and every day of his in the history of American politics, there has never been a movement rooted in improving the lives of working class and poor Americans that did not include black people. What are the consequences of contemporary black electoral politics being rooted in the corporate right wing of the Democratic Party with a large number of white progressives to its left? How can working class black politics be brought to life in order to challenge this reality? We will ask former Bernie Sanders communication director, Brianna Joy Gray, that question and more. This is Revolution. It could very well be too late for the black man in America. Probably the next five or ten years will indicate whether or not the black man can survive. Our struggle for survival is a very real struggle. And the white man has prepared genocide for black people. Unemployment, the black man is no longer necessary. Unemployment is going to be a, a way of life for black people. We are going to face increasing dangers and problems as the days pass. And we're totally unequipped as black people to deal with them. We're a part of a slave culture. We have no preparation. We have no black institutions capable of dealing with white racist institutions designed to serve only white people. We must deal with the problem that confronts black people by building black institutions, by understanding that only a separatist position is a viable position for black people. Any organization or any leader in America who today advocates integration is a foe and an enemy of black people and their survival in the coming years. The Congressional Black Caucus, composed of the 13 black members of the U.S. House Representatives, believe that uh, we are on the threshold of a new era of political power for blacks, uh, not only in America, but in Africa and in the Caribbean area. We feel the survival of black America is threatened by racial schizophrenia that plagues a great portion of black leadership. Malcolm called this problem the problem of the house nigger against the field nigger. Its destructive ramification exists yet today. Black masses are governed and led by an elite few who have split loyalties between their black and white families. These racial schizoids are leading us down the path of racial genocide through the propagation of forced integration and the calculated assimilation. Black people could very well disappear as a people and certainly lose all prospect for black political, economic, and social power annually. It's getting close to election time, so I thought I'd drop in on my favorite project people, the Evans family. And, of course, my warmest and heartfelt greetings and salutations to you two, Winifreda. 